0: I invite you to take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, as we come back to where we were a few weeks ago. Matthew chapter 5, and I will be reading verses 31 and 32, verses 31 and 32, and then we'll pray together and then we'll dive in. Matthew 5, verses 31 and 32. This is what the Spirit says. Our Lord Jesus speaking. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to Your Word, we know that we need Your Spirit's help to understand Your Word, to embrace Your truth, to obey Your commands. And so we ask now that You would graciously work by Your Spirit in me as I speak and in all of us as we hear your words, that we might receive them as your words, believe them, trust them, love them, and live according to them. For the glory of the one who spoke these words, our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Now today we come back... To the Sermon on the Mount. We had been there since uh, September, and we will continue on, I think, till around the end of February or so. So as you can tell by the pace, it's going to pick up just a bit uh, here soon. But it's a sermon in which Jesus is teaching us what it means to follow Him, what it means to be part of His kingdom, what it means to be a Christian. Because as Christians, we are meant to live lives that are distinct from the world, and this whole sermon lays out that kind of distinction. The reality is there should be something peculiar about us, about the way we think, and about the way we speak, and about the way we live. We ought not to fit in so easily. The Bible tells it calls us strangers and aliens and says we are to be holy. And if there was ever a day when Christians truly need to be clear on what it means to live a distinct life, it's today. Now, surely that is true in all days, but we feel it, don't we? We feel the need to shine as the light of Christ, to be the salt of the earth, to be distinct from the world around us. Not in a sense of superiority, but in a sense of being set apart to something other than the world, to the one who came to save the world. Now, thus far in this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has laid out the distinct relationship of the Christian to God and to others and to the unbelieving world in the Beatitudes. And then He declares that His mission is not to abolish the law but to fulfill it. And then beginning in chapter 5 verse 21, He begins to confront the teaching of the Pharisees that his crowd has been listening to for quite a while. They've been listening to the scribes. They've been listening to the Pharisees. But according to Jesus, they're not getting it right. They're actually distorting the law that Jesus came to fulfill. And in just the two verses that we read, what Jesus is seeking to do is to correct this a wrong view of divorce. Divorce. One that would have been taught by Pharisees and scribes. Now, as we think about our day, the statistics regarding divorce divorce are staggering, aren't they? 50% of all marriages end in divorce, 60% of all second marriages, 73% of all third marriages. Every 13 seconds, a couple gets divorced. Which means, in the time that it takes for a couple to recite their wedding vows, nine to 10 couples divorce. 277 in a one hour wedding ceremony, 2.4 million a year. But divorce really isn't so much about the statistics, it's about the stories. Stories of children bouncing back and forth between mom and dad, stories of adultery or abuse, stories of anger, stories of court battles, stories of financial hardship, all stories of pain. And just based on the statistics alone, the reality is, is that most, if not all of us, have watched this play out somewhere in the lives of our friends or in the lives of family members or in the lives of our adult children maybe it's played out in our own lives and what is particularly sad and what brings a heaviness is that is that sin and divorce are inextricably linked because either sin brings to divorce or the decision to divorce itself is sinful, which is why it is a serious subject. But the good news is that whatever the story is, and that whatever the sin is, that God's grace is sufficient to forgive and to strengthen, to change, and to even reconcile. God's purposes to glorify Himself and to grow us in Christ's likeness are not derailed by divorce. Isn't that good news? It's good news, now, when I come to these two little verses, I'm very aware that there's a limit to what I can say. First of all, as a preacher, or as a te- if you teach Sunday school, if you ever, uh, men, you have the chance to preach, don't, your first limit is the limit of the text in front of you, okay? This needs to guard and to guide what it is that will be said. But what I have in mind, actually, is that I can't actually cover the details of every divorce story in one sermon, right? Right? This is where biblical counseling is so helpful because what happens in preaching is that we take a small text and and we explain it and apply it to a variety of different situations, not really being able to speak specifically into every single one. What happens in biblical counseling is that you take the the entirety of the Bible and you bring it to bear on one particular situation. Both are absolutely necessary, and the reality is, if you're thinking about something else, maybe that's the first time you've heard biblical counseling, not if you've been here for more than about two and a half seconds, but if that's something new to you, just know that you are a counselor. The friend who's struggling in their marriage is going to call, and the moment you pick up the phone and they lay out the problem, you are a counselor. Counselor. And so, it's important for all of us to think biblically on these things so that when we are struggling, we can think biblically, and so that when our friends are struggling, we can help them think biblically on these matters. So, I can't do all of every situation you've ever encountered in one session. I think... I don't think it would actually be possible if I devoted every Sunday to it because there would always be another wrinkle, always be another detail, always be another something else. So, sorry for that. But with God's help, my goal is that we will understand what it is that Jesus is saying and doing here so that our thinking and our decision-making and our counseling of others will be shaped by His words. Now, let's read them again, and then we will dive in. Jesus says, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So, the first thing I want us to think about is the context of Jesus' words, all right? What is the context in which Jesus' words come? Well, the immediate context is here in the Sermon on the Mount. In the, the previous paragraph, he had spoken about adultery, okay? And so it, it makes sense that he would go from adultery right to marriage. But there are actually some, a couple of bigger contexts that we should have in mind as we come to Jesus' words here. The first is the, is the context of the biblical idea of marriage, okay? The biblical idea of marriage, which takes us back to Genesis 2. Now we don't often just flip around our Bibles, but it's a new year, so we'll do something new for today. So if you'll keep your hand there and go back to Genesis chapter 2. God forms Adam out of the dust of the earth, and He breathes life into him. He sets him down in a garden and tells him he needs to work the garden and keep the garden to protect the garden, if you will. And then um, God says this in chapter 2, verse 18, Genesis 2, 18, "'It is not good that the man should be alone.'" I will make him a helper fit for him. So Adam is alone, and God says this isn't good. Now, beware here, because this is not about how Adam feels about being alone. This is not about Adam's loneliness. This is about Adam's solitariness. It's not good because if you go back into Genesis 1, you know what you'll find? God's intention was never just male. God's intention was to create mankind, male and female. So the not goodness is about the fact that God's plan is not yet complete. His creation act is not yet complete. So... Uh, what we have here is a very interesting thing. We have the parade of animals in front of Adam, right? And, and then we read in um, verse 20, the man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to the beasts of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. In other words, the kind of relationship and companionship and community that God designs for mankind cannot cannot, cannot ever be fulfilled by the animal kingdom. Pets are wonderful. I wish I could get my dog to like me more, all right? But that's just, that just ain't happening. Unless I'm outside, then she'll come to me. If I'm inside, not so much. I'm not sure what's different. Maybe I'm more threatening inside. I'm not really sure. But pets are wonderful, But friends, pets never take the place of a son or a daughter or a spouse. It may be good to care for a pet after one even loses a spouse. Just a good thing. But it doesn't take the place of it. It's not God's design. So, this whole parade goes by and This is not God's design, so God puts Adam to sleep, takes his rib, and creates the woman. And then, verse 23, the man said, "'This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh.'" So together, Adam and Eve form the foundational relationship of all of human society, marriage. Now, it is important for us to say over and over and over again that this is God's design for marriage. It came before sin ever entered the world. God's design is one man and one woman for one lifetime. And every part of that is God's design. One man, one woman, one lifetime. That's how God set things up before sin entered the world. And let me reread verse 24. It should be on the screen. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is the description of the relationship, saying that marriage is primary that there's this leaving aspect, all right? The apron strings have to be cut. And the primary relationship in a man's life, once he's married, is no longer mom and dad. It is now his wife. The same is true for the wife. Her primary relationship is no longer with mom and dad. It is with husband. And friends, that is true when children come along because children are temporarily in our home can I get an amen? All right. <laughs> I'm just seeing if you're awake. All right. Here's the thing is that children come along and they're a blessing of the Lord, but they are meant to grow up and to be, uh, to be, to grow and to be independent. Linda, I remember a few weeks after we took Caleb to college. I don't know if you remember this conversation. Linda Matthews comes up to me and it's good to see you here, by the way. I hope you're feeling well. But, um, but Linda comes up to me and, and asks how Susan is doing with, with Caleb moving out because, you know, she was quite sad to walk by her daughter's empty bedroom once they moved out, and I couldn't help but giggle. And I said, Linda, we have six children. I said, an hour after he was gone, another child was in there picking out paint samples <laughs> because, because they wanted their own room. But that's how things are meant to go. They're meant to… Children are meant to grow uh, and to grow in dependence on the Lord and independent from mom and dad and to move out and and these kinds of things. But marriage is primary, and marriage is also permanent. This idea of holding fast is one of permanence. It's gorilla-gluing your lives together. It's welding them until death do us part. And it's this permanent portion of God's design for marriage that is in Jesus' mind when He speaks. All right, so let's go back to Matthew. Keep holding Matthew 5, but keep going forward to Matthew 19, because what we have in Matthew 19 is kind of an expansion of the discussion we have in just two verses in Matthew 5. And this time, Jesus isn't teaching His disciples. He's answering a direct question from the Pharisees. Matthew 19, beginning in verse 3. And Pharisees came up to Him and tested Him by asking, "'Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause?' He answered, "'Have you not read that He who created them from the beginning "'made them male and female, and said, "'Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother "'and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh?' "'So they are no longer two, but one flesh.'" and marries another, commits adultery. So when Jesus addresses the issue of divorce, He does exactly what we just did, which is to go back to the beginning. Now, by the way, I want to take just a brief side note because you will come across brothers and sisters in Christ who say that Jesus allows for no exceptions in divorce for those who are fully married. They will make the case that Jesus only has in mind the betrothal period when He talks about divorce. Excuse me. Now, it is true that the word divorce is used for breaking a betrothal. Betrothal is uh, more serious than what we call engagement, all right? It is a greater commitment. It would require that divorce. So, we all know that though, right? That divorce applies to the betrothal period. We just we all read the Christmas text just a couple of weeks ago, didn't we? And Joseph finds out that Mary, his betrothed, is with child, and so he resolves to quietly what? Divorce her. It's the same thing. It's the same idea. So, it can be used for that period. Um, And so some say, that because it's so clear in the story with Joseph and Mary, that this must be what Jesus is talking about. The difficulty is... And look, before we get to the difficulty, let me say that I'm sympathetic to my friends who believe this, because I want you to know that I fight for marriage tooth and nail. Um, I am committed, and I can say with great certainty... That, that none of us who are elders would ever look at someone and say, you must get a divorce because that's simply not the case. But I have sympathy for that. I want to fight for marriage. I want to fight for confession of sin and, and forgiveness and reconciliation and change and growth. And that is, that is the gravity that we all ought to feel in our souls is toward that but i don't think the evidence holds up that the exception only applies to betrothal here's why it's still the side note just here in verse here in chapter 19 sorry jesus quotes genesis 2 in answering this question on divorce does genesis 2 speak to the betrothal period or to marriage marriage Then he says, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Do we say that about people in the betrothal period or in marriage? Marriage. Then he gives this exception in verse 9, that whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. My only conclusion is that in Matthew 19, Jesus is talking about full marriage and not just betrothal, which draws me to the, I know, I mean, I feel like we should know Jesus well enough to say he's not going to say one thing in one place and a different thing in another place. So here in Matthew 5, he's speaking about the same thing. But a warning for you, okay? Matthew 19, Matthew 5, these are not texts about exceptions. They are texts about the rule. They are texts about permanence, They are texts about not taking marriage just like it's something you can just throw away. Like it's a high school dating relationship. The emphasis is not on the exception. The emphasis is on permanence. And that's what is in Jesus' mind. That's why he says that it was not so from the beginning. So, enough with the side note. So, the the biblical idea of marriage is in the background of what Jesus says in Matthew 5. But also, there's a second bigger context we need to keep in mind, and that is the debate of His day. The debate of the day. Look what Jesus addresses in chapter 5, verse 31. He says, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. This certificate of divorce is a reference to Deuteronomy 24. We're not going to turn there. I'm just going to read a little bit of it and then explain what it says. So, Deuteronomy 24, beginning in verse 1, just says, "...when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her..." And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Okay, that's the setup. And actually there are more conditional clauses that follow after that. But the situation is here are a man and woman, they get married. There is some indecency found in his wife. He writes a certificate of divorce and he sends her out. Now it goes on to explain that she marries another and then divorces that other. And just basically the point of the whole paragraph is that the first husband cannot marry her again. But within that, we have this idea of the certificate of divorce, which in some ways is meant to protect the woman so that it's known that she, was, she did not flee or she didn't just leave or anything like that, that, that she is protected because a woman in that society couldn't just go out and get a job and decide, I'm just going to make it on my own now. Okay, That's why in 1 Timothy 5, by the way, uh, Paul tells Timothy that if widows are young, they ought to marry again. And so the great, the highest likelihood is that this woman would be married again. So that's to protect the woman. But the point that's relevant to Matthew 5 is that the certificate of divorce guards against flippancy. It guards against flippant divorce. The law never, please hear me, if you hear nothing else, hear this. The law of God never commands divorce. It never commends divorce. It seeks to control divorce. That's what Deuteronomy 24 is doing. Because remember what Jesus said, it's because of the hardness of your heart that Moses even allowed it in the first place. And so, in seeking to restrain and control divorce, Moses says, if a man divorces his wife, there must be this certificate which would give solid grounds as to why the divorce is happening. There would, they, it would show that there was some indecency. Those words, some indecency, the Hebrew for those words, is very difficult. It only appears one other time and has nothing to do with marriage. And so, it's been difficult to nail down But the point was, I mean, okay, so it certainly could not be adultery. Now, if you think about the law, you know why that can't be the case. Because adultery would result in what? Death. Okay, but it would be likely, it is some other serious offense, and most likely a sexual offense of some, some kind. The point is that Moses is saying, you can't just put out your wife. There has to be serious grounds for this. You can't just decide, eh, don't want to be married to her anymore. And in Jesus' day, there was, there was this debate going on about what the indecency was that Moses was talking about. And there were a couple of different schools of thought. There was a school of Shammai, a teacher, who interpreted indecency very narrowly and restricted it to only being about divorce because, you see, in the first century the death penalty for adultery was no longer being carried out. But according to the law, adultery literally ended divorce, right? It literally ended marriage, right? Because the guilty person would have been stoned to death. And so this school of Shammai says that what Moses is getting at, the heart of this, is this kind of indecency. It's adultery, period, nothing else. And then there's the school of Hillel. The school of Hillel comes along and interprets it not narrowly, but quite broadly, and basically says that this indecency uh, is basically, it could be adultery, but also it could be something as small as a wife burning her husband's dinner. It could be something like, well, her looks are fading to me, and other women look better And I find this to be indecent. In other words, indecency was whatever the husband said it was. So those who were in the school of Shammai had a very strict view of divorce. Those in the school of Hillel had a very broad view of divorce. And friends, in our day, It should go without saying that the school of Hillel reigns supreme. And I I truly would love to say that that is limited to those outside of the church. But it's not limited in that way. Because there are those in the church who would follow that broad view. And so here is Jesus in Matthew 5, 31 and 32 stepping into the debate of His day with the biblical idea of marriage in His mind and He speaks. Whoever divorces, his, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife Let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, what Jesus is doing here is correcting. And so we've seen the context of Jesus' words, and we need to see the correction of Jesus' words. It's what He's been doing all along. Jesus is not correcting the Old Testament in any way, shape, or form. He did not come to abolish the law. He is correcting the scribes and Pharisees and their wrong interpretation and wrong application of God's law. And there are basically three ways that I see Jesus' words correcting what the Pharisees would say. The first is that the Pharisees focus on legality, while Jesus focuses on morality. Okay? So, these folks have heard from the Pharisees, all they've heard is the importance of the legality in divorce. So, he's quoting what the Pharisees would say, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. You guys have heard that, right? Right? You've heard it said, you know, make sure all your I's are dotted and all your T's are crossed. Make sure the certificate is in line. But Jesus isn't so much concerned with whether a divorce is legal or not. He's concerned with whether it's moral. Isn't that interesting? Because as we all know, something can be legal while being immoral. Immoral it is legal to kill a boy or girl so long as they are still in the womb of the mother. But it is dreadfully immoral. Likewise, our legal system may allow no-fault divorces, which in many surveys are the, the, the reasons given for divorce are outside of this realm of sexual immorality. And our legal system may say it is legal for one to just say, I'm tired of it and I'm just done. But Jesus does not. The majority of the divorces that happen today in our society are immoral in the eyes of Jesus. Now, those are, that's a strong thought, I know. But it's a corrective to the idea that all that matters is what is legal. We don't answer to, the, to civil law. You understand that, right? Ultimately, we will not give an account to any human judge. We stand before God, and He is concerned with morality. He is concerned with our thoughts and our words and our lives being aligned with His Word. The second correction that Jesus makes is that the Pharisees put no limits on divorce. Jesus puts a strict limit on divorce. This follows right on the heels of the first correction, but the Pharisees followed the school of Hillel, basically where indecency can be virtually anything. If they were to twist Jesus' words that we'll get to uh, in several weeks, they would say something like this, the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to divorce, and there are many reasons why you may enter it. So go ahead. Now what is especially disturbing about this view of indecency this wide and broad view where anything goes is that the authority has shifted from God to me I am the lawmaker who will decide what is indecent I am the prosecutor that will make my case for indecency I am the jury who will decide whether you are indecent and I am the judge who will sentence the indecent one to being sent away." That is the biggest problem here. The biggest problem is the issue of authority. And this is the pattern today, but it's not just about divorce, friends. It's about all matters of morality. Human autonomy and the right to be my own law, my own moral compass is guarded as precious but friends Jesus never guards our autonomy as individual human beings he never guards our right to be our own lawmaker he doesn't hand over the authority to us he gives us the one exception sexual immorality now, in all fairness, this idea of se- sexual immorality is just about as <laughs> difficult as uh, the idea of some indecency. It certainly would include uh, adultery. It's, that is primary. That is, uh, uh, if not, exclusive. But the idea is that the one flesh union of husband and wife, that covenant made before God, them coming together, that has been broken in the, in the, in the physical realm. Yet, even then, I want to say it again sexual immorality doesn't demand divorce. It is not okay. It wrecks, it erodes, it rips, it's awful. But it doesn't demand divorce. God never commands nor commends divorce. It is a merciful concession to the one who is crushed by the perpetual, unrepentant sin of the other. Jesus sets strong limits. Divorce may not be entered by the authority of the individual, even an unsatisfied individual, even when conflict abounds and it seems hopeless, even even if I would say I have a sense of peace about it. If we just pause there and we think, there were a whole bunch of false prophets running around in the Old Testament. In the midst of times when God was saying that Israel needed to repent, when they needed to stop sinning, when they needed to return to faithfulness. And do you know what the false prophets were saying? Peace, peace, there's peace, peace, everybody. Just because I say I have a sense of peace doesn't mean that what I'm about to do is from God. I love to feel good about what I'm doing. (laughs) I would love to convince myself that whatever I'm about to do must be okay because I feel pretty good about it. After all, I've got peace and people shrivel into a corner as if we can't say anything else. The guy says he has peace. Peace is not the great authority in, in big decisions in life. The Bible is. We have to remember that. Our feelings are not sufficient for life and for godliness, friends. But the scripture is. The scripture is. So, the Pharisees focus on legality, Jesus focuses on morality. The Pharisees set no limits. Jesus sets strong limits. The third way of correction here is to see that the Pharisees in the end take marriage lightly while Jesus takes marriage seriously. I mean, this is the conclusion we have to draw. If you're not concerned about the morality of ending marriage, if you're not concerned about any kind of restriction on ending it, then it's not a big deal. I mean, you can whip in and out of it like it's a drive through that's not what Jesus does. Jesus takes it so seriously that He says you can draw a straight line from most divorces to adultery. That's pretty serious, isn't it? The woman, the, the one who is divorced, the one who marries that one, why? Because in God's eyes there was no grounds for it. The original marriage isn't dissolved in that sense. Entering a new marriage is entrance into sin, into adultery. That's how serious it is. This is not the time and place to talk about, well, what do we do about the second marriage? This is, this is to say to you, right where you are, right where I am, to simply hit the eject button on marriage. And to go on to someone new is not to escape something, it is to enter something. It is to enter into sin according to Jesus. We have to take it that seriously, don't we? Because, friends, in the end we don't stay in marriage for the kids. We don't stay in the marriage to keep to save face. We don't persevere so that at the end of life I can just feel like, you know, I didn't, per- I didn't give up. Friends, our faithfulness in marriage is drawn from God's faithfulness to us and is aimed at the glory of God. If you're a married person right now, your faithfulness in that marriage is ultimately about the glory of God. It is not about your reputation. It is not even primarily about the stability of the home, though it it does provide stability to persevere and to endure. And not just to grin and bear it, but to learn how to confess our sin and to learn how to forgive and and to repent and to change and to grow. that kind of seriousness about marriage really isn't present in our day people speak of marriage oh, it's just a civil institution it's just a piece of paper I mean some some suggest that we should just do away with the whole till death do us part bit altogether that instead we should enter a renewable marriage contract with one another so you try it out for a couple of years things are going all right you re-up for another couple of years I don't know if you remember the first two years of your marriage I do I'm pretty sure Susan would not have signed back up for another two years with me all right because those first years are rough aren't they because what's happening is just close contact with another human being 24 hours a day, 7 days a week is peeling back the exterior of my life and showing me who I really am I thought I was pretty unselfish when I got married and then I got married and I realized that things like toilet paper rolls and, and dressers and sock drawers and these are things that mattered far too much to me But this is how people think, and it's been proposed, at least, at least it was proposed a couple of years ago in Mexico City, that this would be the way you do it. You sign up for a couple of years, if it's good, you're going to re-sign. But friends, that kind of flippant attitude does not stay outside the doors of the church. Because we tend to exalt emotion. We tend to exalt the idea of being in love. We tend to exalt the idea of personal satisfaction with my circumstances rather than keeping our eyes on a covenant keeping Savior and knowing that He will give us strength to keep covenant with one another. Taking marriage lightly follows in the footsteps of the Pharisees, not of Jesus. And friends, if we're Christians, we have to follow Jesus. So, married folks, don't don't look for a way out. Fight for a way through. Fight to honor the Lord in your marriage right where you are. Because your honoring of the Lord is not contingent upon your spouse. Your honoring of the Lord is contingent only on you. If you're not married, don't take marriage lightly. Take it seriously. Now, for some of you who are single, you may be single the rest of your life. And the Lord will bless you in that. He will give you more time to actually serve and give yourself away, time that you would have given to a spouse. And praise the Lord for that. But for those of you who are single, who look to marriage at some point, take it seriously. Submit to God's Word, both in what marriage is and in who you should marry. You see, Jesus is the Lord of all of life. So Jesus is the Lord of marriage and he's serious about marriage. I mean it comes to mind that this limit limiting ourselves to just thinking about what Jesus says here keeps away keeps away our own ideas and it also is keeping us out of other texts that we might consider that lord willing we'll consider in the next couple of years. But Jesus takes marriage seriously. Do you? He doesn't just take it seriously because of the original design of marriage, he takes it seriously because of the ultimate design of marriage. Which is in Ephesians 5, which we won't turn to. You should just put it down as your homework to read Ephesians 5:22 to 33. And there we read that marriage's ultimate design is that the permanent relationship between husband and wife is meant to reflect the permanent relationship between Jesus Christ and his church, his bride. You see, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus died for us, and His death for us is how He has demonstrated His love for us. A sacrificial love, that will never be taken from us. We are joined to him as part of his church in a holy and spiritual marriage. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He will never put us out. He Jesus Christ, dear friend, if you are a believer in Jesus, he will never write you a certificate of divorce. Never. Though we are weak, Though we, are, though we doubt, though we are prone to wander, though we stumble, though we sin, yet His love endures. I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the committed love of Jesus Christ for his bride, for us. His love never fails. His love never gives up. His love never runs out. His love endures with grace and patience and forgiveness to the end. And with God's help, this is the kind of commitment that we should have in marriage. That is distinct from the world. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you thankful for a steadfast love that never fails, that never ceases, that never wavers. A grip on us in love that never loosens, never slips. We are thankful to know that we are yours through and through. And we pray that you will help us to think on these issues with gravity. That we will take marriage as seriously as you do. We pray that we will be concerned about the morality of staying in or ending a marriage. We pray by your grace that you would keep us from imitating the world and just looking for a way out if things get hard. Keep us from believing the lie that, that there's a way of life where we don't experience hard things. I pray for the marriages in this congregation. Lord, would you give us grace to imitate the Lord Jesus, to take marriage seriously, to take it as the blessing that it it is, to honor you in it I pray that love and commitment will blossom in our marriages for your glory. We pray all this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.